That might have been my fault. I walked in front of the speakers. My bad, guys. My bad. Well, we can get started this morning. We're continuing in our series in 1 Corinthians. Um, and as I was reading this passage this week, I, I, I couldn't help but think. Like spiritual authority, which is what Paul is dealing with, pastoral authority, leadership, spiritual authority in the church is not something most people, most modern people at least, are very comfortable with. We've become more and more skeptical of those in spiritual authority. Our culture tends to kind of guard with suspicion anyone who's been given that kind of role or title. Spiritual authority is something that we have issue with culturally. And it's, it's pretty easy to see why. Most of us are, are used to hearing about the church in the news as regards these failings, these problems, right? Pastors and leaders within the church have been accused of and convicted so often of things like corruption and sexual sin and sexual abuse, the abuse of their power and their position, cover-ups of these sorts of things over and over again. The list goes on. And so when, when Paul starts to articulate in 1 Corinthians 4 what, what spiritual authority is supposed to look like, even we as believers can find ourselves cringing just a little bit to hear the way he's talking. Because he speaks with force. He begins to articulate something. Read these, these first few verses with me. He says, I care very little if I'm judged by you. It is the Lord who judges me. I mean, like, you hear how that sounds. To our modern ear, it has problems. I mean, it sounds a lot like Tupac. You guys remember that album? Only God can judge me. Some of you guys are like, who's Tupac? Wikipedia, guys. Wikipedia. Some of you guys are like, what does Kyle know about Wikipedia and, and, and Tupac? Okay, what, what does he know about it? I rode the bus home, guys. I went to public school, all right? So I learned about things too early. But we hear this coming from Paul, and it it makes us uncomfortable. Only God can judge me. You can't judge me. I don't know about you. The minute somebody says something like that, I'm beginning to wonder, what are they hiding? What are they not telling me? When somebody starts to use that language, because we've just heard so often how people manipulate that idea. It happens over and over again. And in this passage, Paul wants to reject the whole notion of leadership and spiritual authority that we generally have in our culture, right? This notion of the unquestionable, infallible, unchallengeable leader, unopposable. He wants to remove that completely. He's like, he's kind of inverting the understanding that we have of what leadership is supposed to look like in our culture and in the ancient culture of Corinth. He's trying to change the way they see things. He's flipping it all on its head. So, like, for example, normally, when someone says something like that, you can't judge me. What you think of me, it means nothing. You can't judge me. When somebody says that, normally, especially somebody in a position of authority, they're, they're kind of feeling the heat. Their back's against the wall. They need to justify themselves. They need to prove themselves right, okay? That's what it generally means. But listen to the way Paul talks. He says, I do not even judge myself. And continues, it is the Lord who judges me. Like when Paul says, you can't judge me, 
He's not evading judgment. He's not trying to escape judgment by these people. He's saying, your judgment is not thorough enough. It's like Jesus, when he tells us the parable of the wheat and the tares, the the workers come to the farmer and they say, there's all these weeds growing up among your wheat. Do you want us to, to uproot the weeds? Do you want us to pull out the weeds? And Jesus says, no, don't do that. That's the, that's the whole heart of the parable. You're not good at judgment. You're not thorough enough. That's what Paul is saying. When he says, I don't even judge myself, he's saying even my own self-criticism, no matter how stern it might be, it would not be enough. He's embracing a far more fearful reality when he says this. He's not trying to escape judgment. He's embracing that neither they nor he is the judge. Christ is is his judge. Excuse me. The Father is his judge. Christ is his judge. He sees things in this way. Paul sees things in a unique kind of way. He, he goes on to say this. Check this out. My conscience is clear. How many times have you ever heard a leader say this? My conscience is clear. That's generally where they finish the sentence. I'm good. I didn't do anything wrong. Paul says, but that does not make me innocent. Like many people get caught in scandal or someone's accusing them of scandal and they get real combative, they get real defensive when their leadership is being questioned. Paul, on the other hand, even while he's innocent of what they're accusing him of, what they would say about him, he openly acknowledges that he's flawed, like deeply flawed. Even while being innocent, he can say all of this. So what you, you, you kind of see in the, the passages, Paul is composing a model for spiritual authority, for leadership that is completely different from what the Corinthians knew. And if we're being real, it's, it's a lot different from what we have known, what we continue to see. You look at verse 10, he says, we are fools for Christ. You are so wise in Christ. We are weak and you are strong. You are honored and, and we are dishonored. When Paul calls himself a fool, he's clever. He knows what he's doing. He's trying to remind us of something. Because if you've read this letter, like the people in Corinth would have been hearing this letter read aloud to them, you can't help but remember the things he says at the beginning of the letter. If you look back at chapter 1, you look at verse 18, there's this statement he says. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness. The message of the cross is foolishness, he says, to those who are perishing. And Paul is kind of embracing that reality as a leader. He's saying, I'm going to make that the paradigm for my leadership. The cross is foolish, he says. And so I don't mind being called a fool. I don't mind being seen in that way. Jonathan talked about this a little bit last week. See, ultimately the model for, for spiritual authority in the life of the church is cruciform. Every leader, every spiritual authority figure, every person who finds themselves in that kind of place is to be marked, defined by the cross. And I think if we're, we're honest about it, I, I, and what we'll find is the reason we see so much abuse of spiritual authority and the reason our hearts have become so hardened towards spiritual authority very often, the reason we're so suspicious of it all is that it has so often not been marked by the cross. It has been marked by something else. Paul 
He's inviting us to embrace this different kind of paradigm for what leadership, what spiritual authority is supposed to look like. But beyond that, he wants us to see it as the paradigm, the model for all of our lives. The cross is meant to define us, what we're seeing happen there. But I think something we all know is that the cross is no easy sell. In a place like Birmingham, it's just not an easy sell. It's not a popular kind of message. Even more so for a Roman city like Corinth, where crucifixion carries a much darker sort of connotation. It's understood a completely different way than we see it. That's something for us to, to, to always be reminded of. Even the early church wrestled with what to do about the crucifixion, how to talk about the crucifixion. How do we talk about this rightly, appropriately? Because for them, it was a very different thing. They never pretended like it didn't happen. They never wanted to cover up Jesus' crucifixion. But they also weren't going to define themselves by it. They didn't want to make it their symbol. They were very cautious about that. They especially didn't like to portray it. They didn't like to depict it in their art. The first 400 years of the church, you don't see the cross. It's something that's it's generally in the background. And that's because throughout all of that time, it was still a legal form of punishment. For many of those years, people continued to be crucified, right? Criminals and terrorists and the worst kinds of people. And people like Jesus, who spoke against Rome, who made Rome uncomfortable, right? These kinds of people got crucified over and over again. And the church was always wrestling with being identified with those kinds of people. They're saying, we follow Jesus, but he's not like that. They didn't want to associate themselves with crucifixion. It took 400 years before you really begin to see the cross come into their artwork. It becomes central to who they are and the way they express themselves, right? They would never have worn it around their necks, but once it becomes illegal, once it's no longer something that's being practiced, they become more comfortable with it. They wanted to, especially in Corinth, they wanted to make their, their history a bit more palatable. And I think it's the same thing in our culture. I think we're, we're wrestling with that as a, a culture right now. It's a big issue right now. I don't know about you guys. I don't know if you heard on Memorial Day in this little town in Ohio, there was a veteran. He was tasked with giving a speech for Memorial Day. He stands up to give his speech. And right as he's about to get to the heart of the speech, his microphone is muted by the people who are running the event. It's because they know where his speech is going. They've asked him to remove it. They know he has not removed it when he gets to this part and he begins to explain the origins of Memorial Day, that it actually originated with a group of freed slaves in Charleston, South Carolina, that black men began Memorial Day as we know it. They got real uncomfortable, so they muted that microphone real quick. They don't want to hear about all that. Talk about Memorial Day as we've known it, not the ugly stuff. That makes us look kind of terrible. And the Corinthians were kind of the same way. We get it. Jesus was crucified. Do we have to talk about it so much? Do we, do we really have to, to use that as the paradigm, the whole model for our lives and what they're supposed to look like? Paul, don't talk about all that. Because it, it was hard enough for them just to talk about it, to, to acknowledge that Jesus was crucified, to talk about worshiping a crucified Savior, a crucified, seemingly failed Messiah. That was a hard thing for them to swallow, to be associated with something so shameful Corinth wrestled with this. This church struggled with it. 
But Paul wants to model spiritual authority on it. He doesn't just want to talk about it a lot. He wants to make it the model for what leadership is supposed to look like. And if you remember, we talked about this in the first week of this series. The Corinthians were a group of people like a lot of ancient Greek cities. They loved philosophy. They loved rhetoric and oration, and they valued that. They wanted someone like they had seen in the marketplace. Those philosophers, those orators, that's what they wanted. They wanted someone who was charismatic. They valued charisma. They wanted a leader who was strong and forceful, and they had their qualms about all this, this foolishness talk. It made them uncomfortable. And I think we have our qualms with it too. As a culture, we have our, our qualms about what he's talking about. Like if you think about leadership in our culture, we generally model it on the executive world. That's what it's supposed to look like. When we think of a leader, we want someone who is successful, effective. We especially like people who are wealthy because those are the representation of, of what success looks like. If you look at who we elect to political office, you know it. It's undeniable. This is how we think of leadership. And I think when we come to church, we bring that baggage with us. When we come to church, we want the same. We want men and women who are just oozing charisma. We want people who are incredibly gifted, uncommonly gifted. That's what we want. That's what we think it's supposed to look like. And the idea is, you know, right, that kind of person can grow the church, can lead us into success. And I think sometimes... That really does come from a good place. We really do desire to see more people come to Jesus, and we think that's the, the, the best way to make it happen. We really do desire to see the kingdom come, right? So let's put it in the hands of, of the alphas, in essence. This is where we come from. Sometimes I think it comes from good places, but I think other times it just comes from the fact that, that we want to be tied to something successful. We want to be associated with something big and important. We want to feel that, because that means... I'm successful. I'm important. And then years down the line, maybe months down the line, we wonder, as the news comes out, we wonder, how did this particular spiritual authority figure, this leader, this pastor, this elder, how did, how did they wonder? How did they begin to err from what we had in mind for them? I think what Paul is kind of revealing is ultimately that happens so often because we have said for so long, what matters in leadership and spiritual authority is charisma. What matters is success. Not spiritual health, not holiness or integrity, not wisdom, just results. Give me results. We love results. And we get results in the church a lot of times. We do. The church does amazing things. We get results. And that is our highest order. We want results. But with the results, very often we get these abuses, these things that have made us so cynical. And in that sense, the thing we have to accept is that a lot of what we see happening, a lot of what has hardened us comes from us. This is what we wanted. It is what the church in America has wanted for a long time. We have wanted to see this happening. We have fed the monster. We created this beast. This is what we want sometimes from a spiritual authority figure. And the same thing is happening in Corinth. This is what they want. They want a leader they can boast about. They want a leader they can be proud of. They want this spokesperson who makes them look good. 
And that's what we want so often. Paul, on the other hand, could care less about all of this. Paul insists on the cross. Paul insists on this foolishness model. If you read through chapter 3, which we're not getting to cover in this series, what he's doing in chapter 3 is is systematically dismantling their notions of, of what leadership is supposed to look like in their eyes, right? He's showing them that they have no real reason to divide over leadership. Why? Because they have misunderstood leadership altogether. The reason you choose your favorite leader is because you think leaders mean something in that way. You have attached a meaning to those who are in leadership that's just not there. You've misunderstood it altogether. You probably remember his argument. He makes this statement. He says, I planted the seed and Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither the planter nor the waterer matters. Only God who makes things grow. This is what he's saying. This is his argument the whole time. And then he starts the fourth chapter where we are today saying, so then this is how you ought to regard us as servants. Servants of Christ as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. This is how you ought to regard us as servants who've been entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Nothing Paul has given them was his to begin with. He never laid claim to it. It was always something that was given to him, this gift that had been offered to him. And he's just a servant who's been left with a responsibility. It sounds a lot like like Jesus when he's telling one of these parables. If you look uh, look at Luke 12, there's this parable of the faithful servant. The story is the master leaves town for a while and the servants are left with certain responsibilities and Jesus says in that parable it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes it's a story about being ready about being faithful in the absence of your master about being a good and faithful servant that's what it's all about And that's how Paul understands spiritual authority. That's how he sees it. Paul sees himself as not merely accountable to the group of people that he's been given charge of. He sees himself as accountable to the judge. Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father. He sees himself as accountable in that way. There's a judge for the universe. And Paul is saying, it is neither you nor I. It is Christ, and he's just his servant. Paul is is just a servant and nothing more, and there's this humility that he's laying out for us. That is what's supposed to define spiritual authority. That is what it's supposed to look like in the life of a leader, humility. Paul embraces that, the humility of the cross, over and over again. Rather than than being this strong and, and charismatic and impressive leader like they want him to be, He's okay with being weak and dishonored in their eyes. He's all right with that. He's comfortable with it. In verse 9, if you look, he says, It seems to me that God has put us apostles on display as those who are at the end of the procession, like those that are condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe. He's okay with being at the end of the line, paraded around as a a fool. He gets it. 
He's okay with being mocked and paraded around as a fool because Jesus was mocked and paraded around as a fool and a lunatic. He's okay with it. He knows he comes from a long line of lunatics, apparently. He gets it. He understands it. Paul knows what we know. We don't want to say it out loud. We've learned this lesson over and over again. Eloquence and success, charisma, giftedness, as much as we're drawn to it, it is not always trustworthy. We've seen that over and over again. It breaks our hearts when we see it. It hardens our hearts when we see it. But spiritual authority marked by the cross, marked by humility, that's something we can actually trust. And that's what Paul wants them to see. You may not agree with me, but his authority is completely modeled after the cross. That has become this new paradigm for what leadership looks like, right? And I think that, that sounds nice, right? A leader who's selfless and self-giving, who's humble and, and sacrificial, who looks after those he's leading in that kind of way. Sounds great, right? Jonathan, Kyle, you guys should be like that. Drew, Grant, you guys should be like that, right? That'd be great. But then the hammer drops. Verse 6, Paul turns it all on us. I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. He goes on, you will not then be puffed up in being a follower of one of us against the other. Paul says, this is for you. I'm saying all of this. I'm explaining all of this for you. This isn't just something that I'm using to hold myself accountable. I'm saying this for you. Paul is refusing to be this puffed up, prideful, self-important kind of leader. And he's saying to them, you also ought not to be puffed up, boastful, prideful people. Let go of it, he's saying. If you read further down, we didn't get to read this today, but in verse 16, he just says it outright. After laying out who he is as a servant, he says in verse 16, therefore I urge you to imitate me. I'm a servant. I'm marked by the cross. I'm defined this way. And you need to embrace the pattern of the cross and how you're living your life and how you're seen in the community. You need to be marked by this humility. You ought to see yourself as servants of Christ. That humility ought to mark you, but the reality is it doesn't. It's clear from the way the letter is written that that, that is just not something they've had. They want a boastful, prideful, self-important leader because that's exactly who they are. They're boastful and they're prideful and they want someone who affirms that within them. They need somebody just like them to make them feel better about who they are. That's the thing they've come to value. Paul knows it. And so he resorts to a tactic we all know very well. If you're a father, you've probably used it. If you're a husband or wife, you've probably used it. If you're a teenager, you've certainly used it. Sarcasm. <laughs> and it, it stings, man. It bites. Already, he says, you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Already you have begun to reign, and that without us. I just wish that, that you really had begun to reign, that we might reign with you. 
stings, right? Paul's saying, you're all kings, and we're just your lowly servants. Man, that we were like you, he says. He's mocking them, and it's fitting, because the church at Corinth is becoming a mockery. It's becoming a joke. Like, they claim to follow Jesus. They claim to glorify and worship this crucified Messiah, Jesus. And yet, the way they understand leadership and spiritual authority and life itself, their own lives, it's completely out of touch with who Jesus really is. It doesn't look anything like Jesus. And the thing that we're left to consider in our modern moment, in our present cultural moment as the church, are we completely out of touch with who Jesus really is? Like in terms of, of spiritual authority and how we understand it, is it completely disconnected from what Jesus was actually like? When I look at my own life, is it completely out of touch with what Jesus is really like? I've been thinking about that a lot this week. There's this, this passage in, in John 3. And it, it's the story of John the Baptist and uh, some of his disciples. Remember, John had disciples as well. And his disciples come to them, come, come to him, and they're a little bothered. They say to him, this Jesus that you've been pointing people toward, the, the crowds are going to him. They're not coming to you anymore. They're going to him to get, to get baptized. What do you want us to do? What are we supposed to do with that? And John says something that just strikes me. He says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. In essence, the church, these people, they belong to Christ, not to me. He knows that. He doesn't lay claim to the crowds. He gladly sends them to Jesus, even if that should mean he becomes less and less. And that's what he says. I must decrease and he must increase. I must become less and less as he becomes greater and greater. This is John's heart. It's what Paul is pressing on us. I started thinking about me personally, right? Like when, when I was young, I was given to the delusions that most of us are. I, I was pretty sure that I should decide what I do with my life based on money. If I had money, then I would be happy. If I had money, then I would be secure. I'd be satisfied. And so there's this, this myth in your mind. If, I, if I've got more, if I made more money, then I'd be happier, right? With every dollar more that I can attach to my name, then I am happier. That goes away pretty quick because you meet a lot of people who've got a lot of money who are the most unhappy and depressed people you've ever seen, right? It doesn't last that long. For some of you, maybe you're given to that. When you're young, it's also, it's also pleasure that kind of makes you think, well, I, I could be satisfied, right? Maximize pleasure and I'll maximize satisfaction in my life. I just need more pleasure. I need to have a good time. More vacations, more late nights, more debaucherous activity, right? I'll be happier then. That doesn't last that long either, right? I'm, I'm, I'm well beyond thinking that could satisfy me. But there's this thing, though. There's this thing that gets me sometimes. As a, as a man, as a father, as a pastor, like there's this, this sense so often that I, I want to be seen a certain way. I want to be successful. When someone thinks of me, I, I want to be impressive. 
Like what, what the people at Corinth are wrestling with, I think we, we all wrestle with to some degree. I just, I just want people to be impressed. I, I want them to see me as successful. Not just to be successful, that's fine. Be successful. Be successful. Glorify God. But the thing is, so often we need to be seen as successful. We need to be seen as impressive. Like as a father, we want our children to, to know Jesus and to follow him, to grow up and mature in their faith, to become good people, productive citizens, whatever. And that comes from a really good place sometimes. And sometimes it comes from this need to be seen as successful. You've probably experienced it if you're a father, if you're a mother in the room, that moment when your kid's just like absolutely losing it in front of everybody. You're not just concerned about their well-being and them learning the right way. You're concerned about how everybody sees you. You need to be seen a certain way. And so much of parenting comes from that. I need to be seen as successful and impressive. As a pastor, right? Somebody walks in the doors. They meet me somewhere else. Sometimes you just desperately want to be seen as, as doing it right, getting it right, being successful, being impressive. Somebody listens to a sermon. Somebody walks through the doors and meets some of our people. I want them to be impressed. And I just hear John saying, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. He must become greater. I must become less. This model of humility, this model of the cross. See, Paul is dismantling everything that we have known. And what Paul leaves us with is an image of Christ himself. If you look at the end of the passage, listen to what he's saying. When we are cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage, the refuse of the world. Again, not an easy sell. That's not exactly the, the, the kind of message that you entice people with. It horrifies every salesman. Why would you say something like that, Paul? But when you hear it, you can't help but recall Jesus. You can't help but see Jesus. I think of, of 1 Peter. I think it's 1 Peter 2 where he says, While suffering, Jesus uttered no threats. While being accused of a thing he did not do, he never felt the need to defend himself. Never once did he raise his voice against them. He entrusts himself completely to the Father and no one else. The Father is the judge of the value of what he's doing. This is all he feels responsible to. I think of Paul in, in Philippians 2 saying, Jesus was a servant, not just any kind of servant, but a servant who humbled himself even to death, even to obedience on a cross, Paul says. This is the model. What Paul is, is kind of helping us see is when all of the flash and all of the eloquence all the impressive reality of who we are, when all the success and the wealth, when all the strategy and programming of the church, when all of the hype is peeled away, what you're left with is the cross. 
when all of the hype and all of this stuff is peeled back, what you're left with is the body and blood of Jesus. What you're left with is the bread and the cup. We can't escape it. This is the thing that we have to offer, which is of the most substance. Everything else dissipates, it fades away, deteriorates with time. But the bread and the cup that we come back to again and again, this is what we're left with. It's the real substance of who we are. And so as the, the band comes to lead us in worship, allow that to happen. Allow God to, to, to continue to shape you in this way. To help you to recognize that the paradigm for us as a community, as the church, as God's people, is the cross and nothing else. This is what success looks like. This is what it looks like to get it right. The cross. And all of the ways that you may be uh, like me or like the people of Corinth, um, those fantasies that you're kind of given to, those things that you think will satisfy you, those things you think you want from life, allow yourself to kind of see them through the lens of the cross and ask whether they really have any value whatsoever. This is the invitation in these moments. So now if you would take your, your cups. This is the body of Christ, broken for you. Take and eat. And this is the blood of Christ poured out for the sins of many. Take and drink. Amen. Father, we pray in these moments that we would be a people who are marked and defined and known by your cross. That that foolishness would define us. That we'd be okay with that. That we'd let go of our need to be seen a certain way. Whether we're fathers or mothers, whether we're doctors or nurses or teachers or people working in an office or a coffee shop or whatever, God, would you remove from us the need to be seen a certain way that pleases culture and replace it with a desire to, to be seen through the lens of the cross? And would the crucified Messiah Jesus be revealed in who we are? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.